welcome to Resilience Unraveled. I'm your host, Dr. Russell Thackeray. This podcast is a result of my fascination with health issues, resilience, performance, mental health, accountability and critical thinking, along with many of the other obsessions I bump into in my life. I spend my time working with highly successful teams, organisations and people, and this podcast introduces their remarkable stories, as well as my synthesis of the key issues, tips and strategies to thrive in life. If you find this podcast useful, you can also find other information at qedod.com or russellthackeray.com. Stay tuned to the end for details of how to order a free ebook. Enjoy the podcast. So today I'm going to talk about the subject of burnout. Now, this has actually been um, uh, a sort of a thought of mine for a little while, but has been sort of driven by some articles I've written in the States, um, some client work recently where people are really focused on it, but also the recognition this year and the publicity this year of the World Health Organization's um, guide in diagnosing diagnosing diseases, the International Classification of Diseases, or the ICD-11, and they have actually um, listed burnout as a workplace condition, something that needs to be taken, account, taken account of. And um, according to the handbook, doctors can diagnose someone with burnout if they meet the following symptoms, feelings of energy depletion or exhaustion, increased mental difference, distance, I should say, from one's job, or feelings of negativity or cynicism related to one's job, and reduced professional efficacy. Now, this is really interesting because many, many years ago, um, I, I don't know, 10, 10, 20 years ago perhaps, I remember going to the doctor and being absolutely exhausted. At the time, I was working flat out in a job, but I wasn't just flat out working flat out in a sort of, um, in the commercial sector. I was still working as a musician at the same time. So during the day, I'd work in sales, selling things and such like, and with a sales target, but every night sort of jump into the car and, um, actually getting changed in the car whilst I drove off and drove to London and um, worked at a West End show. So I was, I was actually getting up very, very early in the mornings. I was working flat out really from sort of 8 o'clock in the morning till about 11 o'clock most nights and then travelling and drinking. My lifestyle was terrible. And, and added to that, there were all sorts of lifestyle issues around marriages and you know all the other things. So there was a sort of a coalition of... Um, coalition of, of really difficult factors and I was absolutely exhausted and went to the doctor one day because I was just I couldn't care anymore and I thought I was depressed so I went to the doctor and the doctor looked at me and said well you're not depressed actually because you're you're disassociated from your feelings but you're not um you're not removed from them you know you're not you're not sort of um you're not well you're not depressed and the two things are different even though they look sort of similar and he said I was burned out and actually, for me, it got worse because I actually contracted um, shingles, which is often a, a sign of extreme burnout and such like. Um, and basically what happened, is I'd run out of energy, strength and resources. I wasn't um, building my resilience through nutrition, sleep. Uh, I, I wasn't managing my workload. I was putting undue amounts of pressure on myself. And I was actually treating my body um, in a way where actually... I wasn't inputting enough goodness to be able to actually make the calls on it that I was making on it. And so ran out and therefore became burned out. And you often see people at work who um, are exhibiting these signs, but of course they get mixed up a little bit with, with other conditions. And, and the problem is, of course, that some conditions add to burnout. So anxiety, stress, um, pressure, all these things are, are part of it. And 
And I also think, actually, um, it's not just a, um, um, a thing that's about work in that sense. You often see people exhibiting similar signs who have high degrees of dopamine addiction. And so some people, you know, when they're younger, often see these sorts of things coming from maybe being addicted to games or Facebook or those other sorts of areas. So I think there's a sort of, I thought there's a link and a correlation in that area as well as the burnout to do with work. And... Um, and I think it's time to have a little think about what that means for organisations, but also what that means for people. Because actually, when we're starting to take um, terms like stress and pressure, which have have really sort of, the, the meaning has been lost and corrupted over the ages. And then we're starting to link the depression and um, overall other things to do with mental health together. The whole thing starts to get somewhat um, mixed up. And... Um, so I thought it would be interesting just to spend a bit of time just standing back and thinking about it. Um, I think it's a good time for the, the World Health Organization to actually, um, you know, to address this subject area because actually um, one of the things about mental health as a whole, and I'm doing sort of bunny ears at the moment, parenthesis at the moment, is that there's a sort of still, I think, a recognition whilst mental health is becoming um, um, more, I wouldn't say fashionable, but more in the uh, in the public zeitgeist, there's still this thing that, you know, mental health conditions don't always get the, the support and the recognition that they deserve. I mean, if you have a leg chopped off, or even if you come to work and you talk about cancer or something along those lines, people will swing into action. The trouble with burnout, of course, is that you often need to remove yourself from the situation because you need to repair and renew. And the same is true for things like anxiety and extreme stress. You have to disappear. And I think there still is a sort of culture where people, because they can't see it, don't necessarily give it the credence it deserves. And of course, you've often got the thing where people can remove themselves from work because of burnout or all those other conditions. And actually, their anxiety at returning to work is great, partly because of what people are going to say to them and partly because actually of their own self sense of having gotten to that situation. Now, the thing with burnout that's different to all these other um, conditions is that there's no need for antidepressants with burnout because you're not depressed um, you are still in contact with your feelings. It's just, in fact, you are completely, completely aware of being worn out, whereas depression is you're not usually aware of anything at all. And so this is the thing that differentiates the sort of two conditions. And that's why we've got to not over-dramatise the situation. We haven't got to rush straight for drug treatments. We actually can build strategies in terms of our own resilience to be able to manage the whole situation and recognise the early warning indicators, as it were, as it, as, as it, as it were. including, given that it's a, a, um, a workplace condition rather than a medical condition, um, I think there's going to be a duty of care on employers to be more skilled at looking for the signs and um, they'll have to sort of think about the signs within both leadership and management, but also in their culture that can lead um, to a culture of burnout being casually created. And, um, and I think one of the challenges for organisations that might focus their minds is that with this ruling, there is this sort of risk now of um, potential litigation. And it's not hard to link workplace stress um, and burnout to poor management and leadership practices and poor cultural practices as well. And, and I think um, scrutiny will start to appear, um, you know, when we're sort of seeing people who are working massively long, poorly paid shifts, especially when you link those to sort of lifestyle poverty. 
Um, I don't mean that's because that's fashionable. It's just because actually in their actual lifestyle there is poverty because they've fallen beneath, beneath the poverty line. And so therefore you'll find some organisations, you know, underpaying and therefore create, you know, creating the situation where people need three or four jobs to make the ends meet. And often that's because they're low-skilled workers or they haven't, um, they haven't actually you know, taking time to actually get, you know, better or more differentiated skills and there can be all sorts of reasons. But you can become trapped in a cycle where you have to work three or four jobs so you can't develop yourself. And so you get caught in a sort of, you know, it was called modern slavery to me recently. I know that has a different connotation, but it is a sort of a gig economy slavery where you're working, working, working just to make each amends meet. You can't develop yourself. You can't build the skills you need to break out of that cycle. And then you, therefore you, you get, you just get sort of caught and, you know, often to add, you know, fuel to the fire you've got um, difficult living conditions as well you might be living in a place with high rent or a, you know place that's not healthy for you because you're working so hard similar to i found many years ago that you're not looking after yourself you're not sleeping well critically and you're not um thinking about health and well-being and nutrition because actually there seem to be more important things on your mind you know just making ends meet and paying the rent or mortgage that month is can be the the critical driver Meanwhile, of course, organisations are leaping about, telling you how you should be and how you should be engaged and all other stuff that's culturally um, interesting at the moment, but not recognising actually for certain people that's going to bring burnout. And it doesn't have to be the the people who are the sort of um, the low low pay side of the spectrum. Of course, that's the same um, for people at the high end, high pay side of the side, the sort of you know the traditional white collar end. You know, you have people I know who are working many many hours and actually expected to stay twenty four hours a day to bring a project in, or we've got some coding to do. It all has to be done on time. There's a sort of a culture of extreme busyness and self-importance in an organisation and people are coming to work on Sundays and Saturdays or taking work home and answering emails and they have to run some emails because they're perceived to need to be on call the whole time and if they're not on call the whole time then the sort of accusations made that they don't care they're not bothered and and this from an organisation where if the person you know would leave then perhaps in two weeks time they would have been forgotten already and I think sometimes, you know, we've forgotten this sort of construct that sits between organisations and workers, which is, you know, it's a deal, isn't it? We expect certain things and we'll, for which we'll um, recompense you. Now, just because we pay you a lot doesn't mean that you have to work harder. It means that you have to be more effective in your work. And sometimes, therefore, the way we reward and recompense and um, recognise achievement and excellence and progress at the tops of organisations or the middles can, can be just as important. And um, and I think we have to actually recognise that when we're having higher expectations of people, we are causing causing pressure to build. And I think this is this is a problem. So um, we also have to recognise that when we're looking at our people at work, that we have to look at the whole person. And if someone has gone through a bereavement or a, a divorce or one of the you know or a, a house move, you know those things that are traditionally the feature of high stress engagements then we need to be thinking about the workload as well and when you know when there's a particular spike where life and work comes together to create a, a sort of a crisis point then we reckon you need to recognize of course that we actually have to have um, some downtime as well i was talking in an organization recently and someone said to me um, one of the key things about leadership is to create an, a, a condition where everyone's 100 percent on the whole time Everyone has to be hyped up and ready to rock and roll and really, really sort of power through things all the time, all the time, all the time. And it's, and it's just, 
This is the sort of thing I mean. This is the thing where you actually recognise that people then need to appear to be busy the whole time because they need to be showing that they're powered on the whole time rather than recognising that you need people at 100% at certain times. But actually, there are times when you need to renew and recruit and learn. So you need to be powered down to be able to make those things work. And I know it's counterintuitive, um, but it actually is, is really, really important. So there's a bunch of things that, you know, um, leaders and managers can do. Partly they can look out for those signs of whole life um, strategies or whole life issues affecting people and starting to think about how you create up and down moments. And next thing you've got to do is create this adult culture based on accountability. So, you know, let's let's have good conversations with employee, less with employees. Let's, you know, foster a, an engagement, an engaged um, culture where people, if they get things wrong, Admit it, put them right, and learn from it. So we start to see accountability is action and learning, not fear and punishment. And I think actually what happens there is people then they can recognise that they can get things wrong and therefore they're not constantly working many, many extra hours to get things right, which didn't need to be quite so perfect because perfectionism is part of this issue here. And I think we need to recognise that we need to build resilience in processes, structures and in people. So tools exist to delay burnout. We need to create capacity in those three areas. And um, and then, as I say, you can have rest and renewal, both in the processes, structures and in the people, so that it's possible to bounce back. And if you've got a system which is poor, then you have to recognise that people work harder just to cope with the the lack of investment in your systems. So, you know, that's not a people issue, that's an organisational issue, and one where effectively you're building risk into your processes. So recognise that and take ownership, accountability, and fix the systems. Um, if you have a command and control culture where bosses throw their weight around and shout and scream at people, recognise that creates for some people a sense of pressure, and that's, that's going to drive burnout. So be accountable, recognise it, fix it, and change. And I think... I was recently listening to the CEO of Gallup talking about this idea that um, in order to change the culture, we need to we need to create this idea that people come to work now less for their pay in a funny sort of way, because that's what we used to do 25, 30 years ago, because our purpose was fulfilled by families and, you know, having a job, progressing through up a ladder and then arriving at and having a family. And people are doing that less. So actually, they want to find more purpose and meaning in their work. And... So that idea of um, rewarding people and creating a sense of not just satisfaction, but development, having a clear sense of purpose and a clear sense of intent. And, you know, people often um, um, accuse youngsters of wanting meaning in their work, you know, making a difference. Well, well, what's, what's wrong with that? That's, that's a vital part of actually connecting people to the organisational strategy and a key thing of creating a situation where people understand where their efforts actually has some sort of output rather than just working and working and working because actually today's KPI says X and tomorrow's KPI says Y. Well, you know, there comes a point where you get burned out, you get tired, you get cynical about that and all the usual command and control strategies fail to actually deliver what you're talking about. It's also important that bosses become great coaches rather than command and control people. And, you know, that, um, that's a key part of leadership. It's about clarity. So, you know, what we want, how we want it, what level we want it, where we're going, where changes might be coming, and we treat people like, like adults. You know, we sort of get away from this idea that we have to keep people in the dark because they can't be trusted. Well, you know, tell people and then deal with the consequences. That's what leadership's about. 
And the reward strategies are key here. Obviously, if you're paying under the market rate um, and then expect people to work harder, then people aren't making ends meet. That's, you know, we, we sort of talked about that earlier. But actually, you need to sort of factor in, I think, increased insurance premiums and litigation now. And actually, you'll start to see that underpaying by a couple of dollars or a couple of cents or a couple of pounds, euros, whatever it might be an hour, is going to be a false economy soon. People need to have the ability to feed themselves and have that wherewithal. And I think it's a key there that we have there for HR delivering on delivering the sort of value side of well-being, not just having ping pong tables and fruit, but actually having proper EAP programs in as last course, but also having managers trained up to know what's going on without turning the entire workforce into a, a sort of a victim zone. And I think there are some courses and strategies out there, especially around the mental health space, which are sort of characterising everyone from borderline personality and disordered and schizophrenia to low mood as having a mental health issue. And whilst we're becoming more, the pendulum swung from not thinking about this, we now have to not overthink it. So we have to understand where HR actually delivers value on this and making sure that communication is clear, that there's an enlightenment in the process. And actually there's some proper HR policies which are about burnout, how to spot them and how to deal with them. And I think it's important as well in, at work that, you know, there's the opportunity during the course of the day to have some fresh air. You know, the idea to, you know, not be looking at fresh air through a, an air-conditioned window, like some sort of strange caged animal, but that you get out in it, that you have a lunch break. Imagine that. You don't have to have an hour and a slap-up lunch and 18 pints of alcohol, but you just need to be able to get, get out and have a walk. Once we now know that people actually do better from a short break, fresher and walk, that their productivity goes up and actually that the gains from a half an hour break are greater than the lost half hour, then it's sort of obvious to factor breaks into the equation and making sure that these are well done breaks. And um, and I think that's really important. And you know, creating you know, places um, where in the organisation people can sit down and talk to each other. So we're not actually just sending emails all the time. We're actually having that sort of social interaction. And social interaction is great for rejuvenating, for idea creation, for sharing ideas, good practice and such like. And therefore, one of the things we have to think about is, whilst technology seems to be an attractive place to go to look at preventing burnout, it can be a bit of a red herring. There are apps, you know... Um, I was on a cruise ship recently and, you know, you have to carry your phone around with you on a, on a holiday now because, you know, you open your, do your door with the, f the phone, you have the quizzes on the phone, you have um, the guidance on the phone, you book your meals on the phone. But you know what? Putting your phone down is really good for you. Turning the computer off is really good for you. We're, we're realising now that learning on online devices is less effective than learning on using traditional things. I mean, imagine reading a book. Well, why wouldn't you if, if the learning sticks better in your head? And rather than reading something 17 times because it seems quicker and cheaper on a Kindle, why don't you read it once in a book? Because the whole you know, sort of kinesthetic experience of reading is missing in other areas. And it's great to meet people. Sometimes you have laughter, and laughter is really good for you. Um, and actually, the best thing to return from burnout is actually laughter, is having fun, whether it's black humour because you want to, you know, sort of, um, sort of all get together and have, have a good old sort of gossip about the latest madness of management, or actually because you want genuine laughter because you want to talk about what was on, you know, telly last night, the old... Water cooler conversations were very popular and they were very effective. And I think creating the places where people can go and do that is key. Recognising the leaders and managers as we're using breaks as a way to get greater productivity allows you to think about people getting the best use of their breaks. 
So for me, for companies, this is a bit of a wake-up call. And I think uh, without getting hysterical about the whole thing, we definitely need to um, to be able to um, you know build in the factors where we're looking for burnout without treating people like children though we're not wrapping them up in cotton wool and sort of not giving them work it's about creating accountability having really good adult conversations talking about people's development talking about accountability and putting things right talking about potential and how they meet it and actually thinking that thing through about where is our intent and actually if people don't have potential and are not maximizing their attention uh, potential at your workplace if they're not making a difference then you have to hope they're getting it somewhere else in their lives so if they have a dull meaningless job and they have a dull meaningless life using their own terminology you might have a person with burnout on the hands and because it's recognized in the workplace that's why it's important to you now there's a ton of things that really um impact into um this whole thing of uh, burnout, so stress, pressure and anxiety being three, the easiest to look at. So let's have a look at three of them. And we have full blogs on these subjects, stress, pressure, anxiety and sleep and rejuvenation and health and nutrition. We've got a downloadable resilience book, a downloadable health and nutrition book, all free ebooks that you can get from rampaging around our site on qedod.com. But just a few thoughts. So stress, as we know, is often driven by the adrenaline cortisol response. And so one of the things we have to look at is recognizing that while stress is good for you because you need energy that comes from adrenaline and cortisol, um, sometimes the triggers of stress can actually overwhelm us because we actually have too many demands on our time. And broadly, stress falls into four, four areas. And we call it the SOX methodology. So the, to do with the S of self, the O of others, the C of life's context and the S of a particular situation in hand. And actually, when all those four things are rated as high, then you will be experiencing more stress, cortisol and adrenaline. And that, you know, that over a sustained course of time can create all sorts of problems in your body. It can also create the situation where you become more anxious because it, it, it can link in with your emotions to actually start to stimulate a, stimulate a richer cocktail of neurotransmitters, uh, neuropeptides and hormones and that's why we have to think at a physiological level about actually how we deal with some of these sorts of things. And all the strategies for actually reducing the amount of cortisol in your body you can think about for other things. So, you know, doing more work is a way, oddly enough, of reducing cortisol because actually we create mental fog from stress because we get tired because we have so much to do because so we have so many things so prioritizing creating lists of things to do and things not to do are really simple ways of starting to do work that actually reduces the cortisol cortisol needs to be used up to reduce the stress but also there are things to do where you can actually go away and actively get rid of um, cortisol you can use it up through air walking which is why the breaks are good but through gym work through cycling I mean, you talk to people who've been in the gym and, you know, they're, they're, they're relaxed, uh, they've reduced their cortisol and they've got all these lovely endorphins flowing through their system. You can often um, eat a healthier, balanced more lifestyle, which allows your body to, um, at a gut level, to repair more quickly. So stress doesn't begin to have an effect on diabetes. It's not having an effect on insulin exchange. And it's actually using more fibre in your body to actually generate um, the energy you need rather than too much sort of glucose work um 
there's, you know, there's, there's, there's a ton of strategies you can use. Um, you can use, you go do tai, tai Chi, some people like meditation, which I find, um, which is great, but I find the slower methods. Singing is great. Shouting is great. Going to the football matches or sports and yelling and screaming is great because you're using up huge amounts of cortisol. You're, you know, cleansing it from your system where it's being driven and produced as a result of those stress inputs. And so if you think about your life as a balance of getting the sort of energy you need to do what you need to do without it tipping over the edge to create the condition that we call, you know, a problem with stress, then that's what we have to do. It's a balancing point. We need stress to live. Um, with too little stress, we'd be dead, but too much stress, we're dead as well. So it's about getting that nice sweet spot to have the energy we need to achieve the tasks at hand of all of our lives. And that's where when those inputs go out of kilter, you have a sort of a problem. And when you're not using them up enough. So sitting quivering and being frightened and not doing things, which is an emotional reaction, actually stops you using up the cortisol. So sometimes facing your fears and getting on with things uses up cortisol because you use it up in facing the fear. Um, so there's a ton of different things. And as I said, we've got many podcasts and blogs and resources on our site to help you in this. And then the other thing to think about is pressure. And um, this is sort of a cognitive idea. And whilst in engineering, we think of pressure being an external event, in personal resilience, we think of it about it being an internal event. So, you know, you can give the same amount of workload to, um, or the same amount of problems to 10 people in the room, but three people will lap it up, three people will be okay about it, and four people will go, ah, I've got pressure. And pressure can come from this sort of, sort of ego's idea of drama that exists in your life, which is blaming other people and moaning and whinging about stuff, the old BMW triad. But pressure is really internal choice about how you're handling the world in terms of personal resilience. And external pressures, therefore, become about external expectations of you, how much is expected and what level is expected of you. So the processes of managing expectations can be used to drop your own pressure. And the other thing is genuinely the level of workload you have how much you have to do over what period of time, over how much control you have over that level of work, over how much quality, you know, the sort of um, quality standards expected. And therefore, you know, leaders can use that simple tool to be able to understand the, the sort of workload situation which is going on for people. And people can do the same sort of thing for themselves. Again, tons more, tons more information in, online. And last area, of course, is anxiety, which is a big thing. A big thing. I always called stress, pressure, and anxiety the axis of evil when it comes to burnouts. Because really, what's going on with these things is that nutritionally you're becoming depleted. But the key thing is hitting your sleep. And the trouble with when you lose sleep, you actually have all sorts of issues around being able to renew and repair because sleep is a vital component for your health and well-being. It's a vital component when you've been burned out to actually get your energy back because you're, you're repairing when you're going through sleep. And when you have too much stress, pressure and anxiety, sleep's often the first thing that suffers because you're lying at night, you know, tossing and turning, thinking, oh, I should have done this, I should have done that, oh my God, if I didn't do this, someone will say that, and oh my God, that means this is that, and oh, it'll all fall off, and then, ah, you know, that, you know, that catastrophizing um, thought pattern comes from lack of sleep, it's exacerbated in street from anxiety, which is a sort of a fear of the, the unknown, which is this idea that, you know, many years ago, we were anxious as we walked through a forest because we were aware of the risks and things. We, we had our senses heightened. We were, you know, having cortisol adrenaline pumped into our system. But we have modern anxieties, the fear of missing out, imposter syndrome and all these things. And again, we've got tons of resources on, on, on the site. But really what you're doing with the anxiety is you're beginning to build that mental toughness thing. The mental toughness of beginning to control your thoughts. 
So when you're catastrophizing and telling yourself it's all going to be terrible, you've got to actually sit yourself down and say, well, what's my plan? What are we going to actually do? You could use a, a sort of an anxiety management approach by looking at the level of risk and actually planning and putting things together. And in using that rational brain, of course, what's happening is your emotions are coming under check. You're getting a grip of things and you're starting to control what we call the controllables. And um, we're often anxious about the things that seem to have significance in our lives, but we can't do anything about. You know, what you think of Trump and Brexit and the current state of the weather and global warming and all this other stuff. I mean, some people get really bent out of shape and can't or decide not to do anything about it. But some people do decide to do something about it and their levels of anxiety drop. So... What I'm really talking about here is that there are, there are tons of toolkits to allow people to um, spot the signs of burnout because they exist in the stress, pressure and anxiety sort of areas. And then really when someone has it, you've got to rest, you've got to change and you've got to rejuvenate. Now, one of my family members is off work with extreme stress and anxiety. She's on such she's on um, antidepressants. She's having all sorts of issues. And she's been told she had a nervous breakdown. But it's interesting because you look at the two things. She's not depressed, but maybe she's just utterly, utterly burned out. And her anxiety has gone out of control, why it looks more like a sort of a nervous breakdown if that terminology even exists anymore. And I think what we have to do is we can recognise people in our lives today who are going through these features. Um, and when it happens, when people you know, really, really burn out, a burned-out person can bounce back quite quickly. Someone who's gone through the whole um, sort of nervous breakdown thing will take a long, long time. But there's no doubt that burnout can lead to much more significant mental health issues. So you need to get a grip of it. So the simple strategies um, for organisations to look at their leadership management cultures, for HR to think about adding a little bit more value in the in the um, well-being value space there's things for um, people to do to build their own personal resilience and build capacity and process and such like to help and there are things that individuals can do about managing their own stress pressure and anxiety now as i say um if you want to look on our site you'll find all sorts of different information and you'll also find a new burnout audit which we're putting together so no doubt uh, on our site very soon there'll be a page called qedod.com forward slash burnout so why don't you go there and have a look and um, you'll get access to all sorts of bits and bobs, podcasts, blogs, books, materials, and anything else you may find useful. And if you've got any comments, please let us know your thoughts, any comments about your own experience, any comments at all. And uh, of course, if you have issues or areas that you want to, us to help you with, please feel free to contact us. We're always delighted to help. Until the next podcast, you take care. We hope you found today's podcast useful. If you did, why not subscribe and listen to our other podcasts? We would love it if you could leave us a review. To access our resilience coaching, contact us at info at qedod.com. And finally, if you'd like to download our free resilience ebook, go to qedod.com slash free ebook. Thanks for listening.